0: coaching podcast is to encourage and equip those who are called by God to provide spiritual direction to the Church of Jesus Christ. We're teaching warriors to fight for the human heart because only healthy hearts can know God deeply and follow him fully.
1: Welcome everyone to season two of the spiritual coaching podcast. My goal is to equip everyone that has a bent towards spiritual coaching, and to do that by offering training in truth, along with much-needed encouragement. In this season, we're going to move beyond the philosophical foundation of spiritual coaching. That's what we covered in Season 1. Now we're moving on to discuss the heart of the spiritual coach. And again, be sure to go back and and, and be certain that you caught all of the episodes from Season 1, because what is coming is based on what has already been covered. My spiritual coaching page is tworivers.church backslash, slash, I can't say that word, life coaching, make sure you hyphenate life coaching. That's tworivers.church backslash life coaching. I do this because (coughs) only healthy hearts can know God deeply and follow Him fully. So in season two, I'm talking about the conditions of the heart of those that are spiritual coaches. We need to do that before we talk about the particulars of an actual coaching session. Now, as I mentioned last week, the next few episodes are content I presented at a leadership spiritual retreat uh, that I did for our leadership. Um, Unfortunately, the initial two sessions were not captured, so uh, I'm recreating them. Uh, from from there on, the audio will be a slightly edited version of the actual outdoor retreat sessions. Imagine that you're with about 20 other leaders under a pavilion, sitting at a picnic table bench, or maybe in your own lawn chair, notes in front of you, pen in hand, and a breeze in the air. To your left, there's a small pond, complete with a boisterous bullfrog proclaiming the glory of God. Uh, this, this episode is going to be a little longer than um, usually, given the context in which I presented it. Um, it was really not long enough for two episodes, but a little longer than one. So I decided just to do it all here in one setting. The topic <clears throat> for this spiritual retreat was keep the fight clean. And uh, it's the heart of the leader that leads the leader. It's the heart of the leader that leads the leader. This first session is we're going to talk about uh, the title, I titled it Inside Out What is in is what comes out. The big idea is that if we would learn how to know ourselves well enough to recognize and release the pain we carry, the drive that manipulates us, the sin that hides in our heart, the sin in our actions, our our leadership and influence, that latter will take care of itself. If we figure out what's inside, what's outside will be what God wants it to be. The big question... um, What's inside is more important than what's outside. This is the, the big point that we want to really focus on, okay? What's inside your heart is more important than what's outside. The condition of your heart is more important than the product of your hands. Why? Because what's outside grows out of what's inside. The fruit of our lives is first the content of our heart. We will always bear fruit, but the question is what kind of fruit? Fleshly fruit, we, we ask God to, have to ask God to bless, or godly fruit that's already blessed. What we say and do is systemic. Is symptomatic of what is in our hearts. We probably already know this and, and say this, but do we really live with an internal focus or are we more focused on what we produce? Now, I didn't say that our actions aren't important. Just that if we are focused on doing right things, even courageous things, ministry-directed things, but not balancing that with the, care, the same care for the condition of our heart, you know, we, need to, we need to grow up. We need to mature a little bit. If we want to live the life God wants, we must have the guard, heart God owns a heart that is healthy and surrendered, a heart that is so healed and whole that it is well differentiated from the past and others and all other pressures and influences. In order to follow God, our heart has to be okay with how God made us, the gifts and talents we do and do not have, what we have experienced and endured, the good and the bad, content with where all that is taking us, where God has called us. We, we have to obey our leaders and the authority over us and still be able to make our own choices. When God sends us out on mission. I'm going to talk today about discipline, but not about it in the way we often think of discipline. There's a little bit of a, a twist we need to understand. Uh, the word discipline tends to conjure up pictures in our head of activity, you know, doing. It takes discipline to get done what needs to be done, when it needs to get done, and how it should be done. It takes discipline to get to the gym, to lose weight, to finish projects, and to not get distracted from, from priorities, and, and, to, and of course to grow, and maintain, and protect relationships. It's often said that Christians need to make sacrifices to discipline their lives in order to do ministry, to be available for the ministry opportunities God brings along to be faithful stewards of their lives. But I want to take you to a deeper level of discipline, the kind that is habitually tuned in to what's in our own heart, the condition of our heart, the health of our soul and spirit. This is an intention that monitors our emotions and reads them deeply and doesn't ignore them or silence or box them in. A tentative a tentativeness that learns from them and listens to them and heeds the warnings that our emotions sends us, the kind that is aware of our own past and has worked towards health in the present to such a degree that our past doesn't control, manipulate, and sabotage us in the present. We're going to begin in this episode uh, by uh, showing you four times in the Bible when the discipline of attentiveness, awareness, self-differentiation... was rewarded and valued over other things. Times when cooler heads prevailed because people were able to buck the norm, stand for themselves, make their own decisions, and resist being swayed by majority or peer pressure or fear of rejection. (coughs) You're going to have to look up some of these passages of Scripture yourself and to read them on your own. Particularly this first one is of of that kind, um, because it's a longer passage. So, the first one of these times when we find in the Bible, uh, the first, only the first one of four that I'm going to record, I'm sure there's others you're going to think of, <clears throat> is found in Judges 6. We're going to talk about Gideon's tiny army. We're going to talk about courage and vigilance, or courage and self-control. So in Judges 6, the people of God have, have done evil in God's sight and they're starving and hiding in caves because of the oppression of the Midianites. You know, they've, if they've finally had enough, they cry out to God for deliverance. Uh, and to make a long story short, God sends a, a prophet that um, um, <clears throat> seems to give them a no. And God sends them Gideon then. And um, Gideon finally... And it's a long story. Gideon finally agrees... And musters the army. We're not going to get into Gideon's fleece and all that today. Um, And once Gideon musters the army, there's 32,000 men. uh, But so they don't take credit for the victory for themselves. God reduces the size of the army from that 32,000, which was minuscule compared to the Midianite horde. He reduces that to 10,000. And then from there, down to 300. How God determines that those 300 were more battle-ready than the rest is what we want to learn from. So God tells Gideon that he will test the men, that 10,000 that's left. The first 12,000 that leave is just um, 22,000 that leaves. Or just, say, if you're afraid, go home. And they went home. But that left 10,000 courageous men against uh, unbelievable odds. But God says "Get to Gideon that he's going to test those 10,000 men. And 9,700 of those men are so thirsty and absorbed with, their, with thirst that they expose themselves to attack by kneeling down and drinking directly from the stream. Only 300 of those men stay alert and watchful by using their hands as cups and bringing the water up to their mouths instead of the other way around. And, and so here's what we learn from this that's pertinent to our discussion and kind of the punchline here. So... First of all, some were afraid. That's the 22,000 timid soldiers went home in the first thinning. They're just too afraid to fight. The second group of men, the 10,000 that are left, these were courageous soldiers. They had the courage to face overwhelming odds even after over half of them, I mean two-thirds of them, had gone home. However, some were also disciplined. 9,700 were thinned out in the second round. Because they were too self-focused to fight. I mean, look at these these percentages. Out of the 10,000, only 300 were courageous and attentive. Tuned into more than their own world and their own needs. Aware and awake to the world around them and the safety of others. That's 3%. Only 3%. So, for what we're saying here is that courage wasn't enough. Not even massive amounts of it. For those 10,000 men to stay and decide to fight, they had to have massive amounts of courage. They were ready to make courageous acts. But God's test shows that they weren't as noble in their hearts or under the skin uh, behind that external bravado. You know, guys, all of you who think yourself a warrior, you need to take heed. Uh, they had courage, but no restraint, no discipline, no vigilance, no watchfulness or denial of their flesh. Their thirst drove them to dink, drink and do it in a way that lacked self-control and restraint, lacked discipline. They, they got down on their knees and shoved their face right in the water and, 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 and just sucked it up right from the stream. But that means, from that perspective, they were completely vulnerable. Their butt is in the air pardon the graphic expression here, but, okay, their head's down, their butt's in the air, and it is ready to get kicked. Do you have a thirst that does that to you, that makes you self-centered and (coughs) pardon me, stupid when triggered that effectively puts your derriere in the air and exposed to the different attacks that come your way? These 9,700 were ready to sacrifice themselves, but their hearts were undisciplined. Those who, are ready, those who are already performing courageous acts of self-sacrifice, you need to know that that isn't what God's looking for in soldiers who fight his battle, battles. He looks for those whose hearts are awake and aware. The warrior God can use is not just one who's willing to do courageous and even potentially sacrificial things, but those whose courage is coupled with a vigilant heart. The 9,700 blinded themselves by their lack of an attentive heart. They were careless and reckless. When God raises up a commander, and army, he does not look on the inside and judge as men do. He looks at the heart for courage and discipline. And if he doesn't find what he's looking for, he rejects them. Some of you know what that reference is. 1 Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So the first thing we see in this story, in this part of the Gideon's story, is that God is looking for, for men, not who are just courageous, but who are courageous and vigilant, whose heart isn't just ready to make some big sacrifice, but who is aware and awake to what is going on around them. And that reference in 1 Samuel 16 was about David. So let's go from Gideon's, the lesson we learned from Gideon's tiny army To King David's self-knowing. A healthy heart is one that's self-differentiated and and David certainly was that and we see that from several different snapshots from his story. There were several times that David showed himself to be of such character and in possession of such a well-differentiated state of heart that he could make choices and take steps that no one else would have made and in fact where others criticized him and begged him to do as they wanted but he had to choose and do what God wanted. Uh, I, I I first picked up some of these ideas from Pete Scazzaro's book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. So uh, I I stole some of this from him. Want to give him credit for that. Um, and when we're talking about self-differentiation, we're just talking about a person who is able to make decisions without those decisions being confused with the demands of others or the fears of his own heart. So someone who is not well differentiated compares himself to others, is afraid of rejection, is afraid uh, has deals with the fear of man. They're afraid of what others are going to think, and so their decisions aren't based on what they would do, but what they think others want them to do. What would make them look good in others' minds? Their own self is all confused and messed up and entangled with other people in their life. It might only be people that are in their mind. It might not be people standing literally before them. It might be what they think a mom or a dad or some other person or spouse would want, but they cannot make their own decisions. They are not self-differentiated. They're all self-conflated and confused and entangled and enmeshed. Every decision is all enmeshed in calculating um f- what maybe the cultural norm is and what people expect and what people want and what will gain them praise from people um, and they're unable to just make a clear decision without all that confusion. So let's talk about David and Goliath for a minute. So the whole army of Israel—they're they're afraid, they're, they're afraid and, and frozen in inactivity. Um, you know, David comes along. He knew his God. He knew God well enough. He knew that God had also helped him to defeat the. Uh, um, A bear and a lion in the process of shepherding the sheep. Uh, He knew who he was inside, and that's what he says when he gets there and he sees all the um, armies of Israel cowering before a single man. And um, his brothers, his brother tries to you know put him back in his place where he belongs. Well, you know, as a kid, as a young, as as a a non-warrior, you don't. You know, you shouldn't be here talking like a warrior. You don't have the right to that. And his brother tries to put him back in his place. But David will hear none of it. He just keeps talking. He just keeps talking around to everyone outside of his his uh, of where he should be. Finally, his words are heard and passed on to the king. And um, in, in, in other acts of self-differentiation, the king tries to put his own armor on him. King Saul tries to put his armor on him. And David says, I can't move in this stuff. And so he separates himself from that. Uh, You know, the sword that was in his hand that came from Saul, he puts that aside and takes up the weapon that is his own weapon, one he's familiar with, one he he knows how to use. He takes up his sling and and gathers gathers those five stones. So when David approaches Goliath, he has made several attempts to simply be the person God wants him to be without caving in to the pressures of his brothers and other of those wars that were trying to get him to shut up um, without the pressure of a king who was trying to protect him the way he would protect himself. And of course, in that place, that healthy place, David is able, able to complete, to, com- to defeat Goliath. Um, we also know later when we think of David, we know that he has, was anointed as king. By every standard you can think of, but one, David had every right to stand up against Saul and defend himself against the constant and unjust pursuits and attacks. Saul becomes jealous and and, and David knows he's anointed. He knows he's going to be the next king, but he does not put himself there. He does not take that on himself or hurry along God's plan. Once in a cave and again while standing by a sleeping Saul, David has the chance to take his revenge. In fact, in both cases, he was nudged and tempted to do just so by his soldiers and advisors. But he differentiates himself both from the, his rights to that position and from his followers and made his own decision. He refuses to harm God's anointed or to hurry God and rush the promise. He could easily have helped himself along and helped himself and his men who were being treated like dogs. But he carried something in his heart that few others did. Not just courage, but strength of character. Okay? He wasn't just courageous. He was vigilant. He was aware of the circumstances and his surroundings. He realized that this was God's anointed. He knew that it would be wrong to raise his hands against God's anointed. He knew that he would, should not um, do God's will in his own way or his own timing, but let God work that out. And the one other snapshot uh, involving David is when he has now been um, um, made king and he is in his castle. And he refuses to get ahead of God because um, he refuses to hang on to what he um, had been given. Not only did he refuse to take what was promised, but refused to cling to what he had. And this is when Absalom mounts a coup and, and, and David just walks out of the palace and lets him have it. He is so concerned about acting against what God is doing or allowing by, defeating, by defending himself and his position of privilege that he walks away from everything. Um, and, and, and then Shemi is, is hurling abuses at him and his men, and his men want to go and basically separate the guy's head from his shoulders. And, and David won't allow him to do that. He says things like this, if, he is, um, his, if, if God is through with me, let him do what he thinks is best. And then he walks out of the palace. When cursed by Shemei as he flees Jerusalem. His men want him to go and, 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 and take care of the guy. And, and he says, if the Lord told him to curse me, who am I to stop him? So here's David again doing exactly the opposite of what all the pressure around him and even his position. I mean, what king would abdicate his throne in that kind of way? But David doesn't cling to it.
0: to give your brain a rest. If you would like to connect with Pastor Carey to offer feedback, to suggest topics for future episodes, or to ask a question, there are a few easy ways to do that. You can message him on Twitter. Just search for at TRCSCP. That's an at sign followed by the letters T R C S C P. If you prefer Facebook Messenger, you can search for at PK Spiritual Coaching. That's at PK Spiritual Coaching. Or you can simply email him at carrie at two As you might expect, we'd appreciate it if you'd rate us on iTunes and like and share the podcast as well as our Twitter and Facebook pages so that other church leaders and spiritual coaches can find this helpful content. All right, let's return now to our current episode of the Spiritual Coaching Podcast.
1: Let's move on now and pick up some other, uh, look at a couple more examples of um, people who were poorly self-differentiated or well self-differentiated. We're going to move from the Old Testament and we're going to move into the New Testament for a couple um, pictures here and we're gonna start with Mary and Martha and the familiar story about their different choices Um, so um, Mary and Martha are Jesus friends Jesus comes to their house the two sisters respond in very different ways Martha got busy preparing a meal, which was her proper place in the culture and which distracted her from Jesus and his teaching. And Mary, on the other hand, sat at Jesus' feet listening to him teach. That was definitely not her place culturally. Sitting at the teacher's feet was the place of man. Her place was in the kitchen with her sister, where her sister wanted her. In fact, Martha even tries to put Mary in her place, but Jesus intervenes. She complains to Jesus about having to do all the work without Mary's help. While Mary, apparently to Martha, did nothing. Jesus informs her that while she was worried about and upset over many details, Mary too was concerned and suggested that she wasn't doing nothing. Jesus informs Martha that he would not take away from Mary what she discovered to be a more important use of her time. Martha represents those soldiers that had the courage to fight but lacked the discipline to be vigilant. They didn't realize that what was in their heart could disqualify them from the fight. Mary, as a soldier that was attentive, knew what was going on, had the alertness and wisdom to resist the status quo and the cultural norms and what others were were doing, and stayed alert to Jesus' presence. What was in her heart wasn't inactivity, well, it was physically inactive, but not emotionally or relationally or spiritually. Uh, in those ways, she was very much alive and active, aware and present to the moment and opportunity she had. Her heart was both healthy enough and strong enough to resist the pull and push of norms and ought-tos to be able to do the one thing she needed to be tuned into. So she was well differentiated, able to, to make her own decisions and move towards God and um, um, uh, in, in a way that, while it was uh, um, not normal, was the right thing to do. And lastly, let's just talk about Jesus, his sense of self um, as a self-differentiated person. You know, uh, this is my dearly beloved son who brings me joy. Those words were spoken over him by the father in his baptism at the beginning of his ministry and just before his first recorded um, and one of his biggest tests. Um, The father made sure that Jesus' um, humanity knew his father's approval that he was pleased with him and proud of him. And then again later, at the end of his ministry, not long before the closing scenes of his life and mission played out, the Father sends the same message to Jesus. What a huge gift Jesus received at those moments. Uh, one some of us never got from, from either one or both of our parents. The primary place we can get a sense of ourselves is from our parents. And I'm guessing those two times weren't the only times Jesus heard that from God the Father. These are the only public occasions that we know of. And so there. here's a few verses about Jesus that show his um, what that approval from his father did for him and the self-differentiation he was able to um, walk in. Matthew 14, 22 and 23 says, Immediately after this, Jesus insisted the disciples get back to the boat and cross over to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. See, he quit the ministry. He walked away from ministry. After sending them home, he went, up into the hills by himself to pray. Uh, night fell while he was there alone with God. He, he actually ended ministry to be alone with God. Um, Mark uh, 1, 35-39, before daybreak, the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place, place to pray. Later, Simon and the others, they go out to find him. And when they found him, they said, Everyone is looking for you. But Jesus replies, We must go to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too. That is why I came. So he traveled throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. Here again, he turns away from perfectly good ministry. What you would expect that he would be expected to do. What the people expect, what his disciples expect him to do. And he is heard from God and he's able to hear God and resist the pull and push of what the people around him want and make his own decision. In Luke 4, 42-44, it says, early the next morning, Jesus went out to an isolated place. The crowds searched everywhere for him. And when they finally found him, they begged him not to leave them. But he replied, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too, because that is why I was sent. So he continued to travel around, preaching in synagogues throughout Judea. That's the same idea in the Mark passage, and, and, and I didn't check it. So it might be a synoptic. It might be the actual same story. But it, it bears repeating. Jesus not only withdrew from pressing and needed ministry to connect with his Father, but he left viable ministry behind completely to move in sync with the Father's direction, to break new ground and reach more people. This is most certainly why he was able uh, to, to know and to say, I've completed the work God gave me to do. That kind of focus requires one to be in touch with God and healthy inside enough to say no to what everyone else seems like uh, should have received a yes Jesus knew his mission, and that's how he knew when it was finished. This focus, um, this focused look explains how he could say quite frequently, I hear and only do and say what the Father tells me to say and what pleases Him. Um, oh man, I have all these references from the book of John where he says such things. Um, um, and, uh, I mean, for chapter 5, chapter 8. Uh, in fact, I've highlighted here 8:23 or 28 through 30. If you want to look them up, chapters 10, a bunch of places, chapter 14 as well. In John, oh, uh, one more snapshot that shows just how strong he, Jesus was internally, and that is at his trial and through um, uh, the events that led up to his crucifixion. It says that he remained silent. In fact, the the, the prophecies about him said that he would remain silent. That he was like a a, a lamb to the slaughter, is silent. He answers not a word. Uh, Isaiah 53 mentions that. And then Matthew and and Mark both talk about it. Um, The security Jesus must have had had personally in who he was and in his father's um, pleasure with him. The the self-help that he had to have, to be able to stand up against the, injust, um, the, the the injustice of the lies, the defamation of character, and even the loneliness and abandonment by his 12. Wow, to remain silent, to not defend himself, to not lash out, to, to, to not strike back, to not defend himself, to not speak the truth um, in the face of this power and these lies. Wow, he had to be pretty well inside. And so the question we ask here to to all church leaders, as well as to you, my um, podcast audience, since I'm having to re-record this first session because the audio file was lost, um, how's your heart? We simply cannot be this kind of person that um, the 300 soldiers were and that King David was and uh, and that, again... Um, we see in, in, in uh, Mary as opposed to Martha and even in Jesus' example. We cannot be those kind of purposes if we have doubts about who we are, our value, our usefulness, our, our lovability. If we still struggle with the fear of man and the fear of rejection that need to be respected and agreed with. If we still are managing our reputation and using spin to pres- to present ourselves in a way that we're choosing but in a way that maybe doesn't reflect the truth that is oblique instead of transparent, false instead of true. Courage isn't enough. Busying yourself with courageous actions may just hide the fear so that we have no clue what is working against us. If we're driven by ought tos and what others expect in their opinion, our cultural or church norms and traditions, or by vows we made, or wounds we received, or whatever else you want to say there, I think you get the picture. If those things are manipulating our decisions and our choices, we cannot make our own choices. We cannot even obey God when God tells us to do something that goes against our logic and what people want and what the cultural or church norms are. I want to close by a thought about um, um, not just the idea of sin in our hands, but sin in our heart. Um now Larry Crabb in his book, Inside Out, chapter 8, even talks about the problem of demandingness. And I, I, I grabbed this idea from, from that book, so that's a good read if you want to pick that up, Inside Out, uh, the problem, uh, chapter 8. Um, we may be willing to talk about the pain in our hearts and even the sin in our actions, but less frequently about the sin in our hearts. We tend to leave that bit out. We, we, we can focus on the pain and we can, we can say we did wrong things, but but we're reluctant to talk about the, the insidious um, ground and base of sin that drives repeated defeats to, to sin and temptation. Now, that's especially true when the sin we harbor is a response to unwanted, uninvited, undeserved, and unjust wounds we receive from others. Oh, Maybe we were innocent, a victim of injustice, so our response feels justified. The sin in our heart, maybe it's hatred, Uh, Maybe it's bitterness. It seems justified because of what was done to us. The pain in our hearts leads to sin in our hearts, and that leads to sin in our actions. Uh, Leaders leave the middle part out of that equation to their own peril and to the detriment of those they lead. So it's wrong to say that heart pain equals um, sin actions. There's a step missing. Heart pain leads to heart sin, that leads to actions, sin actions. In fact, if we're coaching, we would tell people that deal with the heart sin, the sin in the heart, and sin in the actions will clean itself up. That is, again, the idea of inside out. Keep the fight clean. It's the heart of the leader that leads the leader. What is inside is what comes out. This is what Jesus teaches, and we'll get to that in another episode. Focusing on not sinning in our actions leads to defeat, when that sin rises from a deeper place. If we only process the first, the heart pain, and the last, the action sins, we will live in constant defeat, and we will get so used to it that we will not even know the defeat is there, especially if on the outside we look pretty much like all other Christ followers around us.
0: That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. If you heard something that got your attention, whether it be for your own relationship with God or for coaching others, don't waste the divine nudge. Be sure to take the time to think through how to work the truth into your life and practice. If you do spiritual coaching, either formally or informally, remember that it is hard to lead where you have never been yourself. I pray that God can use this training to inform and transform your life before it reaches another. If you are anywhere near upstate New York, specifically the Binghamton area, look Pastor Kerry up. He'd love to have a cup of coffee with you and chat about our dynamic relationship with God or about how to do spiritual coaching in your context. Remember, only healthy hearts can know God deeply and follow him fully. Again, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time on the Spiritual Coaching Podcast.